I was joking with my wife this morning as I was getting up and preparing to preach. I was joking that it's been so long, I'm not sure I remember what I said last, let alone the people that gather around. So, so let me give you a little recap. We had just started into our 2020 State of the Church series when the snow came to visit for winter. You remember that? We just started into that series, and the first question I asked in that series was this. I asked, why is it that we gather here anyway? Why is it that we gather at Evangel Assembly on Sundays and we do the things we do? I asked you that question, and then we said there are two particular answers that people might suggest as to why we gather. Do you remember either of those answers? Some of you do. You take notes. That's good. I remember also, because I did say it. I try to remember everything I say. So this is what people have said over the years. The reason why we gather, number one, people have said, is because the church is a gathering of church people, and we gather for insiders like you and I. And the purpose of the church and everything we do here is to build up our faith to keep you and I strong in our faith. And we looked at Ephesians 4 and understanding that the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the pastors and the teachers, their role was to build up the body and maturity of faith so that the work of the Lord could continue. And then the other answer that people give when we say, why are we here? Why is it that we gather like this? The other answer is this. People will say the church is a gathering for the non-churched people. That we exist for the outsiders, to use a term that probably we shouldn't. But we exist for the ones that are not in this building, and our purpose is to bring them in. And we looked at Matthew chapter 28 in the Great Commission that says, Go and preach and teach and baptize and make disciples. And boy, oh boy, if you took me up on my offer to Google this question and to read what different people have to say, there are lots of thoughts on this when you read this online, when you talk with people. Now, of course, I cautioned you that you can't trust everything that you read on Google. I think you agree with that also. But I encourage you to think about that. I encourage you to think about Evangel Assembly. Do we have a tilt? Maybe we haven't declared a tilt, but when we think about the things we do, do we tilt toward church people? Do we tilt toward people in the community? And where should we tilt ultimately? Should we be that Ephesians 4 church? Or should we be that Matthew 28 church? And then I prayed and sent you home. I bet you loved that. We didn't answer that question way back two weeks ago, but the snow wouldn't delay it again. Here I am. I have to answer the question because I promised I would. And so today we're going to talk answers to that question. Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, and then we're going to carry on from there as well. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. 
And that life was the light of men. The light shines in a darkness, but the darkness has not always understood it. Verse 14, this word again, Jesus, this word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. In verse 16, from the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Let's pray together before we dig in this morning. Lord God, I thank you for your word. And I just pray that these words from the Gospel of John and the words that I'm about to share will help us to make sense of what it is that we do here and to help compel us to a greater vision and a greater urgency to be about the business, about the serious business of the things that we ought to be about as a local church in this day. We thank you for this. In the name of Christ, we pray together. Amen. And so we talked about these two kinds of churches. The Ephesians 4 church, we said. The church that is about building up those who are here. And we talked about the Matthew 28 church. The church that is about going and baptizing and reaching and being about the people that aren't here. And there are strengths and there are weaknesses of both churches. And we talked about those as well. The strength of a church, the Ephesians 4 church, the church that is a gathering of church people, the strength of that church is holiness. Because there is a greater likelihood of thinking and behaving the same way and according to scriptural principles. We said that is a strength of the Ephesians 4 church. But the weakness, because there are weaknesses also, the weakness of a gathering dedicated just for you and I, is grace. Because when the gathering of the church is just for you and I, then there has to be a hard boundary between who is in and who is out, who is one of us and who is not. And that boundary can oftentimes get in the way of the exercise of grace. Now on the other side of the coin, the Matthew 28 church, a church as a gathering for church people, it has a strength. The strength of a gathering for church people is acceptance, is the ability to belong while you are working out your belief. And that church has a corresponding weakness, the Matthew 28 church. The weakness of a Matthew 28 church, a gathering for church people, we said, is truth. Because sometimes we sacrifice conversations on sin and repentance in an effort to include more people. Sometimes we offer people a second chance without telling them about the second birth that we have in Christ. And so which one do we pick? Do we pick Ephesians 4? Or do we pick Matthew 28? Certainly if you read online... If you read some places and some articles, they will tell you you have to pick. And they'll tell you which one you ought to pick. But let me begin to answer with another question for you this morning. 
does the church have to pick? Does the church have to pick holiness over acceptance and belonging? Does the church have to pick grace over truth? Does the local church have to pick insiders versus outsiders? Can the local church have holiness and people belonging while they were on their way to belief? Can the local church manage to have a message of truth that also conveys grace? Can the local church be a gathering of insiders and outsiders? And this doesn't solve all the tension there. This is just an idea. And ideas need to be implemented. And this is often where everything falls apart. But we'll get there. But first, the passage we read in John tells us this. The Word became flesh. When Jesus came to earth, he came, verse 14 tells us, full of grace and truth. And not only did he come and embody grace and embody truth, verse 17 tells us that he gave that grace and that truth to the church. He gave that to us. Moses brought the law, John tells us, which was a measure of grace to Israel. Certainly, the sacrifices didn't remove sin. It covered over them. We were still left in the hands of a God who in the Old Testament was gracious, but we didn't understand the grace. It wasn't completely revealed to us as it was. But when John says that Jesus came and he brought grace and truth. And so if Jesus gave to us, the church, grace and and truth both, how can we live those out equally as a gathering in the church? Let's understand the two words we're talking about right now. Grace and truth. Grace is simply defined as a gift that we don't deserve. Something that we have received that we haven't earned. The same word describes the spiritual gifts in Corinthians. There's many gifts that we receive from Jesus that would fall into this category of grace, but the ultimate one is this. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Billy Graham tells a story that while he was driving through a small southern town one day, he was stopped by a policeman because he was speeding. Graham admitted to his guilt, but the officer told him that he was still going to have to appear in a court of law. When he did, the judge said to him, guilty or not guilty? And Graham said, guilty, I did it. And the judge replied, that will be a fine of $10. One dollar for every mile you went over the speed limit. We can tell that Billy Graham was stopped a long time ago. And then, he says, 
He wraps the story up by saying this. Suddenly the judge in the court of law recognized who he was, realized the man, and he said to the man, the judge said, you have violated the law, and yes, the fine ought to be paid, but the judge said, I'm going to pay it for you. And he took a $10 bill out of his wallet, he stapled it to the fine, he submitted it to the clerk, and he said, come on, Mr. Graham, let me take you out for dinner tonight. And that, Billy Graham says, is how God treats repentant sinners. That is a picture of radical acceptance, radical grace. Folks, can the church operate like that? Can the local church operate like that and not sacrifice truth? Can the church patiently point people toward repentance without becoming soft on truth? Well, let me tell you what truth is. That's the other piece of this passage in John. Truth, very simply, is this. It's a fact that doesn't change. Now, in our culture today, we would like to embrace other aspects of truth and other definitions of truth, but fundamentally, truth is this. It's a fact that doesn't change. A man asked his friend once, how many legs does a cow have? And the answer is? And so the man said to his friend, suppose I call the cow's tail a leg. How many legs does the cow have? And the man said, no, he doesn't. The cow still has four legs. You can call a tail a leg, but it doesn't make it a leg. The cow still has four legs. That is truth. Truth doesn't change. Truth is also something that we believe and act on. 1 John says this, chapter 3, verse 18 to 19, Dear children, Let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth, how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. And so, folks, do we have to exist as a gathering of church people with hard boundaries put up, with large walls put up that keep us at a distance from everyone that doesn't think and act like a church person just so that we can have a truth that is pure and unchanging and uncompromising? Or can we be a gathering for church people? Can we understand and express grace that is so freely given, undeserved to everyone, even us, even when we do not believe we want it or even need it? Because, folks, Jesus came to bring both grace and truth. And in church, we ought to find both grace and truth in operation. But how? How can we do that? How always makes things complicated. And how is always where we go back to one side or the other. We sacrifice grace for truth or we sacrifice truth for grace because the how is difficult. Andy Stanley is a pastor in the U.S., the son of Charles Stanley, and he says this, problems are for solving, but tensions are for managing. And in the church, we don't have a grace-truth problem, although we have perceived it as such. We have a grace-truth 
tension and we need to manage that tension. And it no more becomes an issue when we see it like this. How do we manage grace and truth? How do we manage holiness and belonging when someone not living in Christ's holiness wants to belong? Because grace doesn't give us a free pass on truth. But truth doesn't handcuff grace to a certain time limit. We don't have a time limit where we say, Grace, you've got six months to fix this, or truth is going to ship them right out the door they came back in. We don't have that liberty. Scripture doesn't give us that liberty. So how do we manage that tension when people, a person not living according to Christ's holiness, wants to belong? First, we recognize this. That we were all dead in our sins at one point. That we have all fallen in that ditch and sometimes we stumble. Sometimes we fall back in the ditch. And so we ought not turn our nose up too much at a lack of holiness in one area because we know that we have found ourselves, if not in that area, but others before And then we can revert back to the house rules I talked about last week. We can revert back to the rules that say that some unholiness is acceptable. We'll turn a blind eye to it. Whereas other unholiness, no, we we have to crack down on that. Sometimes in churches, we we resolve this holiness-grace tension, this truth-grace tension this way. We resort to the house rules. We say anger, factions, division... Even though these are included in the acts of the sinful nature, they are largely acceptable amongst people who claim to walk with Christ. In fact, there's few people I know that have been removed from positions of influence on the basis of those things. But then the other house rule says this, but the other things, the, the sexual morality, the adultery, the divorce, there's a very clear, unclear path back in those areas. And that's how we don't manage the tension between grace and truth well, we just result back to house rules. Sometimes even more destructive, not in churches I've pastored, thankfully, but in some churches it's even more destructive where a blind eye is turned to truth in some families and some influencers, whereas the grace is given there but not elsewhere. And when we operate like that, we are not operating in grace and truth. We are tossing out grace, and we are living with a distorted truth. And we become a church of church people who think and act and live like we do to the exclusion of everyone that is not there yet. And that is not a management of the tension. That's reverting back to one side or the other. And so the first step is realizing that you and I, at one point in our lives, were not living in Christ's holiness either. At one point, we were dead in our sins, and sometimes we are tempted to look back to that old life. And here's the next thing we need to realize. When we have people who want to belong, but we recognize they're not walking with Christ's holiness in a full experience of his truth yet, the next thing we need to realize is this. The desire to belong in the local church is evidence that the Holy Spirit is doing something small, a beginning work in the life of an individual. I mean, think about it, folks. Nobody comes to church anymore because it's the thing to do. 
Maybe generations gone by, communities gathered in churches, and churches were full because that was the cultural, societal thing to do. But folks, I think we can all agree that doesn't happen any longer. That's why we have large buildings that are not full. That's why we have churches that have closed and some have even disappeared. My grandfather was a deacon at Rockville Baptist Church, and had I not have been there in my lifetime, I would not have believed you that there was a church on that ground. It's gone, and the grass is growing. It looks like there was nothing there. People don't just come to church because it's something that they do. If people are coming, if people are gathering and expressing a desire to belong, then it's the Holy Spirit that's doing some beginning drawing, some beginning work in their heart. The Apostle Paul said it great in 1 Corinthians. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And who in this society, comes to listen to something they perceive as foolishness week after week, continually, without the Holy Spirit doing something in their heart. And so people come. And the way we manage the tension between grace and truth is this. We point people toward repentance. We define that. We say repentance is acknowledging where we have gone against the commands of the Lord. And we say we not only acknowledge it, but we want to change. We point people toward repentance. We point them toward the word of God, toward reading it, toward getting to know the Lord personally and allowing time for the Holy Spirit to work in their life. And we hold them accountable to the level of faith commitments that they have made to the level of truth that they are walking in. But you and I know this too, that there are times that people are unwilling to walk in repentance at that moment. Sometimes people are unwilling to acknowledge where they have broken a command, broken the morality of the Lord, and they are unwilling to walk from it. And in those cases, how do we manage grace and truth? In those cases, I think we manage grace and truth this way. We say to you, there is absolutely a place here for you. God loves you and we love you, and you can belong on the journey. But this is where we balance the tension. Our function in church will be appropriate to the level of faith and submission to Christ that we have demonstrated. Because, folks, we know there's a level of submission to Christ and a level of walking in biblical principles required to serve in hospitality, to be active in administrative functions and technical functions. There's a certain amount of spiritual maturity that it takes to rock babies in the nursery. But in all of these categories, it's not very high maturity spiritually that's required. It's mostly high skill, perfect for people who want to belong while they're sorting out their belief. But there's a higher level required to teach and provide mentoring to kids and to youth and adults. A higher responsibility to walk in the submission to the Lord. There's a higher level of submission to Christ required in holding membership at Evangel Assembly and discerning the future directions and steps of our assembly. And there's a level of submission to Christ and walking in biblical principles required to hold an elected office like deacon or lead pastor. Folks, this isn't a problem to solve. It's a tension to manage. And managing tensions is difficult. 
And when we manage the tension like that, we can be prepared to be misunderstood. We might say, or others might say, I can't believe that church still has so-and-so gathering with them. I've probably said that before. You've probably looked around and said that before. I can't believe that pastor still allows that person to serve on that team. And then we make assumptions that clearly they have sacrificed truth for grace. But there's two things we don't know. We don't know the conversations and the accountability and the work the Spirit is doing in the life. And then secondly, we don't know whether the church really has dropped the ball or not. Sometimes in churches we don't hold people as accountable as we ought to to the Word of God. Here's another truth that I've also seen. The desire to belong in the local church and the unwillingness to repent and walk according to the word of God, that tension won't remain forever. A person will fall in or a person will fall out. And I've seen that happen too. I've seen that happen in churches where I've pastored, and I've watched it take place even here in two and a half years at Evangel Assembly. A desire to belong will bring you close to Christ, and you will either accept his offer of salvation and grow in maturity in Christ, or resistance to that appeal, to that holiness. Resistance to repentance will cause the desire to dry up, and the drawing of the Spirit will relent, and we will no longer see the evidence and the desire to gather around. And so in plain sense, folks, here's the answer to the question. Is the church a gathering of church people? Of course it is. Is the church a gathering for non-church people? Absolutely it is. But here's the punchline. Although we don't have to choose one side or the other, we can't focus on insiders or outsiders. Biblically, we need to be doing both. But here's the thing, folks. Churches like Evangel and others and so many in our country have focused on the inside exclusively for so many years that it's going to take intentional work for us to think about what non-church people think of us what makes them connect with us. And we should want them, welcome them, and plan for them. And we should even consider what it's like to be one of them and make adjustments sometimes even to our own comfort to make them more willing to join us to find out about the grace and the truth that there is in Christ. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians, Though I am free and belong to no one, he says, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. He says later on in that passage, I have become all things to all people so that by all means I might save some and I do this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. That even... If it sacrifices our comfort, Paul says, even if it causes us to ask different questions, to think differently, we ought to be about the business of thinking both about those who gather and those who have not yet gathered. When we look at church, when we look at what we do, we operate many programs and we make lots of decisions about what to do in those programs with you and I in mind church people in mind. 
We, the church people, make a lot of those decisions. And so a lot of the things that we do build up the body for the most part. But have we ever asked what would make our programs and what would make our gatherings more attractive and more appealing to those who have not yet heard the message of Christ? Because if they haven't heard, how can they accept? What would make them more irresistible? Instead of only asking Pastor Aaron, what do the youth of Evangel want to do and crafting programming around that, what if we said, Pastor Aaron, what will compel the youth of Yarmouth to connect with the youth of Evangel Assembly? Where is their intersection there? What if we said, not what do the men of Evangel want to do? And let's do that. What if we said, what are the men of Yarmouth up to these days? And how can our faith and life cross paths with their lives and be a witness in faith? Are the things that we are doing even a little bit appealing? It's not the only question we ask, but it's one that I think in churches all across our country, we have asked too little. Instead of asking What does the perfect Sunday a.m. gathering look like for Christians that attend Evangel? What is the perfect length? What is the perfect style of music? What is the perfect topics addressed? What is the perfect length of the sermon? What is the perfect sweater that the lead pastor needs to pick out to wear? I'm wearing a new one today. I got it for Christmas. And we haven't been together much since then, so I haven't had a chance to wear it yet. But maybe we should also ask, what things can we do to help the people of Yarmouth feel the need to gather with us on Sunday and to feel more comfortable when they are here, walking in and hearing the message of the gospel, both in big ways and in small ways? What if we asked that question, which is a question that we maybe not have asked in churches all across our country for some time. And I know this is why some churches have served coffee in their foyers. It's why we did at our Christmas cantata and our Sunday school concert, because a cup in hand means socialization and conversation. It helps people linger longer. It's a small thing. And, and some people have expressed to me, it's foolishness and excess. But that's because you're already here and you're already comfortable. And I know that there's been a philosophy sometimes in some churches that things like that are a slippery slope down to irrelevance. It's a slippery slope to, to helping people feel comfortable in their sin as though we're dealing with a serious heresy in the church. But when did we get to a place as the local church in our country when we have to pick between coffee and biblical truth, when we have to pick between being comfortable or having doctrinal purity, when we have to pick between hospitable or holiness in the local church, as though we cannot possibly operate as both. If we want to function both as a gathering of church people, and we do, and a gathering for non-church people, and we do, then let's let our mind go to what it is like to be a non-church person joining our gatherings. We want them. We want to welcome them. We want to plan for them. And we want to consider what it would be like to be one of them. Why is that? Because the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. 
because we want to increase our capacity to reach and disciple all those who are being drawn by the Holy Spirit. And when we exegeted that passage about the workers being few and the harvest being plenty, we realized this. There's a lot of pew space here. There's pew space in other places in town. That's not the capacity we're talking about. It's the capacity in our hearts to manage grace and truth well in that tension so that when the Lord sends, when we harvest the drawn, we manage them well. Kerry Newhoff is a pastor north of Toronto, and he says this, which I thought captured the essence of what we are talking about today. He said, you can't ignore the needs of your church members. And we could put a period there, and, and there's some truth to that, lots of truth to that. And that comes as a, as a welcome relief to some who have felt that some of the new trends in church are pushing away the members and are pushing away the established traditions. We can't ignore what we have done to get us here. But Kerry Newhoff says there's a strange paradox that's true about spiritual maturity. The best way to become mature is to stop focusing on our needs and to begin focusing on Christ and the needs of others. He said some church leaders drown in a sinkhole of trying to satisfy escalating demands of unpleasable members while they watch the real mission go up in flames. And so, folks, yes, we exist for the church. We exist to equip and to build up the church, and we are all part of that. There is no one too young. There is no one too old to be part of that mission and that vision. But it's going to take extra effort to break down the walls that separate us from our community. And probably to start with me not talking about us and the community as two very separate things. It's not an easy challenge. It's been a challenge since the book of Acts. The first church council in the book of Acts. You can read it in the book of Acts. This was the debate should we Jewish Christians let the Gentile Christians join us? And if we do, how do we manage that? Do we focus just on us? Or should we allow the outside Gentiles who are walking in faith and believing in faith come in also? This is as old as the church, which is why it is such a difficult thing to manage. Pastor Aaron, come on back, please. We're going to wrap up this morning by praying for an urgency about the way we reach the world around us. We need to be transformed in here, absolutely. And we're going to talk more about that in future weeks. Next week, we're going to talk about holiness in the local church. You and I need to continue to grow in our connection with God. But this morning... We're going to wrap up by praying for an urgency with the way that we reach the world around us. And as part of this State of the Church series and what I'm going to deliver on February 9th, I'm not suggesting we start a new or better outreach program or launch classes at evangelism because programs are only as good as they help us organize to get a need done. I'm going to suggest something way more fundamental what if each of us looked around every Sunday morning and said, what's one small thing I can do to make it easier for someone far from Christ to come join me here 
and discover how to become closer to Christ? What's one small thing I can do? Maybe it's actually inviting them to come with you. I'm sure there's not a person here this morning that wouldn't love a family member, a neighbor, a coworker to come along with them, to join them at church, and then maybe even for lunch afterwards. I'm sure there's very few people here that would be absolutely objected to that idea. And so how can we, with thinking about them with fresh eyes, make one move to make it easier for someone far from Christ to make a step to hearing the message of the gospel, to coming closer to Christ. Because if we believe in this tension, in this approach, and Jesus said he came with grace and truth, and he gave it to the church, if we believe that we are here for us, and we are here to bring people into the church and have them come to encounter the loving grace of God, then let's be doers of that and not just hearers of that. I challenge you to have an invite list. Remember last Easter when we had our Easter invite lists? Start one again, but maybe you don't even have to wait until Easter to invite. And don't give up on just one ask. There's people I've been asking to join us for a long time. And there's some people that came the first time I asked. We're going to pray that we would care that our community is not with us, that there would be an urgency. Pray that we can appropriately understand what the Apostle Paul is speaking about in 1 Corinthians 9. Though I'm a slave and belong to, no, I am free and belong to no one, I've become a slave to everyone. That's probably a message all in itself someday. We're going to pray that we would find ripe fruits because I refuse to believe that all the ripe fruit in our town is picked or is being picked by other churches. Are you with me on that? I refuse to believe that all the hearts that are being stirred by the Holy Spirit are currently going somewhere else and that there is nothing left for us to harvest here. I don't think Scripture teaches that and I refuse to believe that. And folks, remember what was the first thing that motivated Pentecostals 100 years ago. The return of Christ. He's coming again. And if it was imminent when the movement began a hundred years ago, how much more imminent is it now? But those things will only change if it starts with us. So stand with me this morning. Lord God, Lord God, give us our urgency back. Give us our urgency back, Lord God. Though we are free, though we are slaves to no one, Lord God, I just pray that you would speak to our hearts about the things that we can do to become all things to all people, as, your, as the Apostle Paul says, as your word says, that we might in that be able to reach some that we would recognize and look around and realize what it takes to walk in and to become a new person here and that we would take steps to take that, those barriers down so that one, two, and three 
and four and dozens more can hear your message, can hear the pathway to you. Lord, help us to be those kinds of people. Help us to be that kind of church. Empower us with your spirit, Lord God, and restore the urgency to our heart that time is short.